The future of fitness is here. Be a part of it. NASM's new virtual coaching course will equip you with the skills, tools, and strategies necessary to launch, operate, or transition your current fitness or wellness business to a successful virtual coaching business. As a virtual coaching specialist, you'll open yourself up to a whole new world of opportunities, being able to help clients from around the world anywhere and anytime. It's the ultimate flexibility as a trainer, while also creating new revenue streams. Start the next phase of your training career with NASM's Virtual Coaching Specialization. Sign up today at nasm.org or call 1-800-460-6276. You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today I have a special guest on. Her name is Jamie Tartar. She's a PhD, and she is on the NASM Scientific Advisory Board. And I don't know if you've been following the podcast over the last several weeks, uh, that we've been reaching out to the people on our Scientific Advisory Board. We want to hear from them and what they do and what their education is, what they do for a living, what is their course of study, and what is their focus when it comes to academia. But we also want to, to know that the people that are advising us on our Scientific Advisory Board are also people that that are in the weeds, doing the work, trying to make the connections. And we have a... a connection to the science, to the empirical evidence, to the peer-reviewed content that's out there. So let me just go into a little bit with Jamie. Jamie's a professor at the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at NSU's College of Psychology, uh, postdoctorate at Harvard Medical, so questionable, but we'll let that slide. <laughs> and uh, she focused on sleep and in, in that, but now my big question and what I want to talk to her a lot about is what she's been working on recently, which is the Society for Neurosports, the blending of neuroscience and movement and performance and activity and exercise. Jamie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you, Rick. I'm really excited to be here. I've you know, been working with NASM for the last few weeks on a couple of different projects, and it's just an absolutely amazing group, and I'm so happy to be part of things. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, a few years ago, I, I had the opportunity to do some work here at NSU with one of my colleagues. I, it's kind of a funny story. I actually had a student who wanted to look at the effects of exercise on the brain. And so we had an EEG machine and we had lots of ways of looking at the brain, but I didn't have anything to do with exercise. I didn't have any exercise equipment. So I called one of my friends, Dr. Jose Antonio, um, who's here at NSU, and we started collaborating. And that was our initial study where we actually found 30 minutes of exercise seems to give you a little bit of protection against negative information. And this we measured through EEG. And since then, it seemed that every conversation that we had and that people from my area, you know, I'm a neuroscientist, we don't really think of neuroscientists when we think of exercise science. But we had a lot of great, wonderful conversations, and it just seemed that there were an unbelievable amount of studies that we could do crossing these fields, and we started doing a bunch of them. 
And we realized there were a lot of neuroscientists interested in the effects of exercise on the brain, a lot of neuroscientists looking at brain injury in sports. And there were also a lot of exercise scientists who were starting to look above the neck. They spent a lot of time looking below the neck. Yeah. So we wanted to give all of these people an academic home and a place for them to start working across fields. Sometimes, and especially in, in science, we tend to be in our little silos and exercise scientists don't always have the opportunity to talk to neuroscientists. So we did have a conference and, and all of these people came together and, and a lot of collaborations, I think, came out of that. So it's been it's been really exciting. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I think one of the interesting things that we see a lot of times in fitness is that we'll focus on exercise and its benefits on the heart or the cardiovascular system or its benefits towards apoptosis and how it can help some cancers and how it benefits type 2 diabetes and how we've got lists list of benefits of piecemeal in the body. And it is a system, right? So, and, and we haven't been putting the brain into that category very often. I think um, landmark, we had uh, Dr. John Rady's book on uh, called Spark that reached out to the public and let us know that there is a correlation between exercise and its benefits to the brain. But now it's exciting because all we had before then was exercise as medicine focusing on other aspects of the body. But we also had maybe motor learning, you know, mm -hmm. motor patterning, motor development. But now you're talking about something even more than that, like how it affects people's mood, how it affects people's cognition. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And I think this is that that new field of sports neuroscience. And I think we're really starting to understand that it, truly, if you want to have a healthy brain, if you want your brain to stay healthy, you have to have a moving body, that the body and the brain are connected in ways that I think we're just really beginning to understand. Um, one of the things, one of the hot areas of research is this um, idea of uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is actually enough, yeah. heard of this guy, right? So this is this is a chemical that's released when you exercise and, and has direct brain benefits. You know, irisin, another chemical that's released with exercise, sometimes called the exercise hormone, um, is absolutely amazing benefits for the brain. So we are looking at sort of muscle brain access um, as a way that, you know, just increasing muscle mass can improve brain health. So I think it's an exciting time to be working in these fields. Now, is there, you know, everybody's looking for a pill for something. Can you just pop some BDNF, uh, <laughs> take a little, uh, a little dose of it, or is exercise the way to get it? Well, I, there has actually been talk about potentially like, you know, irisin in a in pill form. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think there's something about the milieu of hormones that are released in very specific ways when you exercise, you know, just getting that heart rate up. I don't think we're going to be able to get a get a pill form, but you know, hopefully for the idea, maybe for older adults and people, it's more difficult for them to exercise, maybe something that could be used as an adjuvant with them. So while they're trying to you know, keep moving and stay physical, potentially something that they could do along with that. But I don't think we're quite, quite there yet. So what are some of the interesting findings that you've, whether it's your research or I, I, you've become a hub now with the Society for Neurosports. So what's what's being done out there that to you seems really unique that fitness can start looking at and maybe even making application with? Well, I think one of the things that is really important um, is what you had talked about um, earlier was is this idea of exercise as a, sort of a prophylactic, prophylactic and exercise as a way of combating 
mood disorders. You know, we've shown this in my lab and others have shown this as well, that even immediately after exercise, you know, people have an increase in self-reported mood and we're able to show that, you know, or even neurophysiologically, there's benefits to the brain immediately after a bout of exercise. And I, I think that's that's pretty amazing. And, and a lot of psychologists, I think, are moving towards using exercise with therapy as a way of improving people's mood, as a way of improving anxiety. Um, so I, I think, uh, especially now, I think a lot of people are struggling um, with their emotions. And so it's, re it's a really important time to remember, even if you're stuck at home and e even if you, you may be feeling down, it's really important to get out there and 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 exercise because it will have those beneficial effects on your mood. I think that is important for us because, so I, you know, as a fitness professional, we work at a subclinical level mm -hmm. and there are a lot of people who aren't ready to say, I need, I need help. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm hurting. I, I'm, I, I'm uncomfortable. I don't feel good. I'm, I'm depressed but maybe they're working with a personal trainer and maybe a fitness professional or somebody that's teaching a class, whether it's on, you know, Zoom or whatever the case may be, that, that there's somebody there that, that is helping to provide some type of support. Mm -hmm. And now I hope also that we understand as fitness professionals that there are people who need more than exercise in order to, uh, to overcome some serious issues that they may have. But like subclinically, mm -hmm. it seems like exercise is really a substantial um, intervention for some of these potential disorders that people may have or, you know, whether it's anxiety or depression, chronic or acute, as long as it's within some level at a subclinical place, fitness professionals can support that. Yeah, actually, I've been working with your friends, Steve and Rich and Mike. On, oh, good, um, yeah. yeah. So we're working on something, exactly what you're saying, um, to help coaches learn about brain wellness. And an important component of that is exactly what you said, knowing when to refer out as well. But teaching them things about how the brain works, um, teaching them about mood, about exercise and mood, and, and really importantly, how important sleep is to all of these things as well. So Interesting. That's, that's up and coming from NASM. <laughs> But yeah, so we've we've I've personally have been looking into to sleep a lot. And again, we're seeing people, you know, we talked about Rady talking about the brain, but we have also seen um, talk about subclinical. We've had people like Ariana Huffington mm -hmm. who really put sleep out there in the public's mind when it comes to how important sleep is. Um, what are the benefits of sleep? And they talk about a, a type of medicine that we oftentimes pat ourselves on the back and we say, oh, well, you know, I only slept X amount of hours, five hours. And I showed up at work today and I'm doing it. And people go, whoa, that's so impressive. I mean, that's kind of the stupid thing is that we, right. <laughs> we, brag. we wear it like a badge of honor. We brag about not sleeping. Right. But sleep is a hygiene. It's like, and, it, and I would argue more important than most other hygienes. And and we have this weird thing that we do in our society that, that we don't do with anything else. So you would never come to work and be like, oh, I'm so busy. I haven't brushed my teeth for a week. You <laughs> would never do that. <laughs> we, we know that if you don't sleep, you're gonna, it changes your metabolic rate. You're going to gain weight independently of eating. Uh, you're going to have, you're going to look older, right? You're going to be tired. And the, the funny thing is, to, to your point, is that loss of sleep is a lot like being inebriated in that you're not the one who knows you're having trouble. It's the people around you who know that you're having trouble. 
Well said. Interesting. Yeah. So, so what is, what are some of the things that happen now? I know there was a study that came out recently that said that there were people um, simply by asking them to sleep longer, having them sleep longer, they ended up losing weight. Right. Um, and, and that was, that was the intervention sleep for another hour or two hours. I can't remember what it was. And it wasn't oversleeping. It was basically taking people who weren't sleeping enough and that wanted to lose weight and then just say, here's your intervention, which is sleep for another hour or two. And they, there was a, a clinically significant level of weight loss that took place. That is not what we think. We yeah. think, well, get up and get moving and do some more. What, what's happening? Yeah. So, yeah. So we have to remember that the part of your brain that controls sleep-wake cycles is in the hypothalamus. So this is the part of your brain that also controls all your hormone systems. So once you're, once you have circadian misalignment, once you're not waking up and going to bed at the same time and you're not getting enough sleep, all these hormone systems become dysregulated as well, including, you know, the orexin system, uh, which really just controls your sleep-wake cycles. But we also have um, changes to just basic metabolic rate, um, which can alter how much weight you gain. And again, keeping in the same, keeping calories consistent. Um, so we have, we showed in our lab that we also change ghrelin levels as well. Mm. So people feel more hungry. Um, leptin levels are also altered um, when people don't sleep enough. So it's, it's a pretty basic thing. And one of the other points about sleeping, which maybe people don't know is especially in the last decade or so, we've realized that one of the major functions of sleep is to clear out a lot of these sort of toxic proteins that build up during the day. Your, your brain doesn't have a lymphatic system, so there's no way for your brain to get rid of sort of these toxic chemicals that build up. Um, but when you sleep at night, it's, it's what's now called the glymphatic system comes online. And the glymphatic system is basically like a lymphage drainage pathway. So it removes these waste pot products. And one of the most important waste products that it removes is beta amyloid, which you know, I know is the, is the protein that's associated with the development of Alzheimer's. And, and this, this system, this glymphatic system, really comes on during those deepest stages of sleep. So you really have to get you know, that full eight hours. And, and like you were saying, Rick, it's, it's sometimes most people aren't getting that. And so when we prescribe, you know, s- sleep extension, we're really just giving them the normal eight hours of sleep. We're not really extending. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I want to ask about Alzheimer's because this is for me, um, I'm going to say that it's uh, a fear may not be the right word, but actually maybe the perfect word. Um, after seeing my grandmother, and uh, but what she dealt with with her Alzheimer's and the effect that that had on our family. Um, I, d- I don't want that for my family. Right. So that it's, a, it's one of the biggest fears of mine in the future. And, so, and I'm going to tell you, <laughs> Jamie, every time I forget something, anything, I'm like, oh, no. Oh, well, is, it, is it coming to get me? Um, so anyway, with that said, let, can you speak more maybe to sleep, but also maybe does exercise have an effect as far as we know on the prevention or the delayed onset of things like Alzheimer's? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm sorry you had to deal with that. That That's awful. And I can't imagine you know, yeah. what you would have gone through. And, and, and yeah, so certainly... Like we said, 
you, you have to have a well-functioning brain. There's really no shortcut. You've got to get those eight hours of sleep. You can't train yourself to get less sleep. You can't train yourself to go through these sleep cycles in any other way than, you know, millions of years of evolution <laughs> have already right, right. Able to, whether you like it or not. Um, so as, as far as maintaining cognitive control and having a healthy brain, absolutely sleep is beyond critical. And, and like you said, exercise as well. And, and this is an area that people are starting to look into. Um, one of our advisory board matter, uh, members, um, Dr. Gomez Osman is at University of Miami. And she, she studies um, sort of exercise as um, therapy and the, how exercise can improve cognitive well-being in older adults. And she's really worked out some dosing regimens, you know, exercise dosing for this population. So we do know that certainly exercise, especially in older adults, can preserve cognitive functioning and can even improve cognitive functioning. And, you know, unfortunately, Alzheimer's there is also a very strong genetic component. So I don't think it's, you know, it's it's never fully preventative, but it, sleeping well, exercising, eating healthy are some of the, you know, if you want to live to be a thousand, right, these are, these are the things that you should, you should do. Um, but unfortunately, like, you know, like the development of cancer, which is a lot of unknown factors. Um, and with Alzheimer's, there, there are a lot of unpredictable factors in there as well. Um, but, you know, we, I would say that, you know, that's the, that's what we know is the right combination, you know, eat well, sleep and exercise. Like these three things are just absolutely amazing for your health. I do two of them. You you pick your, you pick the two things, you get two out of three and you're good. I'll just die young. Cause I really, (laughs) I also wonder too, because we used to just say, you know, here's, if there was a magic pill, you know, here's the red one and the green one. And that's, you can eat right or exercise, but, but taking those two together, it was like that, that's the magic cocktail. But I really like this idea that sleep is now being added into that, that Mm -hmm. maybe it's instead of having three pills, here are the three things that you need to do. You need to exercise. You need to eat well, and you need to get uh, sleep. I'm going to ask a couple more questions about sleep, though, that as we're looking at sleep and the number of hours, excuse me, we know that there are different um, phases of sleep. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, for instance, and this is fresh on my mind because I um, went to sleep last night and woke up this morning and I had zero hours of deep sleep. So let's just assume that whatever I'm using to track that is true. I have zero hours of of deep sleep, but I got seven hours of sleep last night. Um, If that maintained and I didn't get into those deeper levels of sleep, will there be something over a period of time that starts to adversely affect? Or is it simply, you know, like, hey, you hit your number, you, you hit, you didn't get eight today, but if you get eight tomorrow, you'll be fine. Or do we need those deeper levels of sleep in order to get these benefits? Yeah, you you do, and I, I don't want I don't want guys in black suits to come beat me up. But I'll say that <laughs> the wearable technologies don't sleep stage well. That's not what they do. Um, so so these whoops and the aura rings, they're very good um, at determining how long you've slept. Um, they if anything maybe overestimate a little bit, but they're really unreliable with staging sleep. So we know when you you know you go off to sleep, you go to N1, N2, N3, and then back to N2, and then into REM sleep. So all night long, you go down into de- the deepest stages of sleep where, you again, you're refreshing. That's where a lot of your memory consolidation takes place, declarative memory consolidation, lymphatic system. 
you know, you're any anything slower, you'd be in a coma, you're at one to four hertz activity. Then you come back up and you go into like REM sleep where your brain kind of acts like it's awake. And this stage is very, very important for emotion processing, for reconciling our daytime emotional activities, then going back down into deep sleep, REM sleep, and you kind of do this all night. Um, so if you slept seven hours, um, you, you, I, I would, you must have gotten <laughs> deep sleep. Um, maybe your, your device didn't, didn't record it as such. I will say that one of the issues with getting older, because you had mentioned earlier about forgetting things, and that's just a we we all do that because as we get older, our, our working memory goes down significantly. So, you know, in that respect, I'm also developing Alzheimer's. You know, I walk, I walk outside to get my mail and I'm standing in the yard. I have no idea what I'm doing there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is just this is just a function of getting older. You know, working memory plummets. I have my kids now mem- remembering things for me. Um, but, you know, sleep will will help with that as well. But then the, the offshoot is as you get older, it's h- harder to get deep sleep. We don't get into deep sleep as easily as we get older. Like in our forties, like I'm in my forties, don't tell anybody, I guess who, all the people who are listening, <laughs> it's, right. much hard, it's much harder to get that deep, satisfying sleep. Like when you're a kid and you could just sleep through thunderstorms, it's not as easy to do that when you're older. That's true. I will say when I was a kid, I had a hard time going to sleep. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, out. my wife is like, how do you do this? You just put your head down and you're asleep. How does that happen? I'm like, I don't know, but I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, these are, yeah, it's a little like, like, like college students, you know, they can stay up late. They have the, the neural resources to do that. But then when they're sleeping, they're getting much better quality sleep than, than we are no, probably. Good for them. Right, another reason to do them. <laughs> <laughs> right. I also remember when people were saying, um, when I was having my first kid, they said, uh, oh, get ready, kiss, sleep goodbye. And I was like, I was in college. I know what it's like to not sleep. And then I found out real quick that when I was in college, it was my choice whether or not I didn't get sleep. <laughs> when I was a parent, that choice was no longer mine. And that, I went into some pretty crazy places. I would hallucinate sometimes while I was somewhere. It was the, the lack of sleep adversely affects your brain. That is for sure. Yeah, I mean, and it's one of those basic things that you know doesn't want to sleep more. So I'm, I give everybody permission to sleep more, knowing that you're actually benefiting your body. It's just like going to the gym. It's, it's so amazing for your health. See, thank you for giving people permission to sleep more. I think that that's <laughs> well, going to help. The other thing that, especially if you're an athlete, we know the other thing. I said you, your memories are consolidated during sleep, but that includes motor memories. So if you're trying to learn a new task or you're lifting weights and you really want those muscle memories to be consolidated, that that happens during sleep. So there's no shortcut, unfortunately. That's interesting because I think about that for performance. So maybe, you know, sleep is good for a bodybuilder, a long distance runner, simply because they're beating up on their body and they need to, you know, rejuvenate, renew the tissue. Um, But for people that are jujitsu players or, Mm -hmm. you know, gymnasts, it may not be as much about rejuvenating the body as it is encoding these patterns uh, into our system so that they can now be applied, not just experienced one time. And then what was that? What was that? But we can put that into an encoding pattern for them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Your, your brain's really just really going like literally those neural networks are firing again while you're sleeping to try to consolidate those, that motor sequence. 
So oh, it's yeah. the days you get better at motor activities, not within a day. You can get a yeah. little bit better within a day, but it's, it's that between day learning for motor activity. So what is, can you talk about encoding? What does that actually mean when, when we talk about encoding in, as far as like motor learning goes? Well, learning in the brain, motor learning is just like any other form of learning. Um, so we, a lot of people like to, this, this, there's like a lot of fancy schmancy words that people like to throw around, like neuroplasticity. And so it's right. just a basic idea that, so the, the neurons you have in your brain are the neurons you were born with. So you're actually born with way more neurons than you actually need, right? So the job of a little baby is to sort of do that neural Darwinism and get rid of a lot of those pathways that aren't important. And really from that point forward, it's all about refining that system, right? That's in place, sort of that the, the, who's connected to whom. And so with any form of learning, one of those first steps is to take one neuron and increase its strength on the other neuron. So when neuron A fires on neuron B, he'll have a more powerful effect on neuron B. And so that's called potentiation. And then, you know, those next steps after that is to just increase the branching. So where we had one dendrite, we might have two. And where this neuron had two dendrites talking to this one, you know, it might branch out talk to this other guy over here. So it's not really the number of neurons that changes or increases our motor learning or any other form of learning. It's that the, that arborization, sort of that how many dendrites are talking to whom that is pla that plastic part of learning. So that the, the axum, the, the nerves that, that uh, fire together, wire together, or wire together, fire together, you just you're improving how well the connection is. Yeah, and, and you can actually change the, the number of dendrites and the strength of those dendrites and the neural networks, but not not the, the number of neurons isn't really the, the critical thing there. It's the, I the see. of the sort of the trees. <laughs> okay, and then so then you're also looking at well, if these are pathways that haven't been used, then mm -hmm. are they do they atrophy if these are you know hypertrophying or if they're not? I guess they're but they're they're making better connections. Those dendrites are are reaching over and, uh, you know, um, making more connections. Does atrophy then happen on the ones that we're not utilizing? Yeah, and, and just like we have that funny little neurons that fire together, wire together, we can also say, use it or lose it, right, is another, right. <laughs> another little phrase in, in neuroscience. It, and that's just one of the things, like we had said with aging, is um, so, you know, sometimes with aging, you start to have your know, memory impairments, but then that it's a little bit uncertain because how much of those memory impairments, especially with Alzheimer's, are due to them not sleeping as much. Um, there's a very close relationship there between sleep and Alzheimer's, but then also if you're sitting home all day watching TV, you're not exercising, you're not moving, you're not reading, you're not really protecting your brain either against um, memory issues. Gotcha. So with the, the Society for Neurosports, are there other things that are being looked at? I'm, I'm sure uh, concussions are maybe high on that list, considering that was you know, really big several years ago. I don't think it's it's slowed down uh, in its research, but it just wasn't at, you know, a few years ago was really landmark uh, in a watershed moment for concussions in sports. Um, is that being looked at now more? Yep, we're actually um, going to have our next conference in March, um, the uh, last weekend of March, and we will have a session on concussion and brain injury in sports. We actually just wrapped up a study here where we looked at um, with our same super friend group, <laughs> we looked at yeah. um, sort of professional athletes, NFL players, MMA fighters. We even looked at you know collegiate soccer players, and just looked at a number of concussions and some peripheral biomarkers associated with brain injury 
Um, so, and then looking at sort of that emotional side, because sometimes with brain injury and concussion, especially in ath- professional athletes, there's that other side of it where sure, you know, they're, they're getting hit in the head a lot, but might weight gain after they retire play a role in that, or might depression symptoms that they have after they leave the sport play a role in that. And so we're trying to look at this more holistically as opposed to number of times you hit your head to look at sort of that systems approach, looking at things like emotion processing, mood, depression, anxiety, um, and also um, weight, because we know that weight, especially sort of belly weight, does play a role in cognitive functioning as well. Interesting. Can you speak more to that? Yeah. So it seems that there seems to be a close relationship between abdominal weight in particular um, and neural processing. One of the things that we we think um, maybe related to both of these things is also cortisol, because as you know, cortisol. Is, I have to be careful with cortisol because I feel like I also need to defend it because cortisol gets no. reputation. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but with chronic stress, we know that um, one of the effects of that is, is abdominal weight in particular. And we're talking about really, really high levels of cortisol here that you would see with like major depressive disorder, or Cushing's disease, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And cortisol also has deleterious effects on your brain. The part of your brain that has a lot of cortisol receptors is, is the hippocampus, which is you know the, the hub of learning and memory for your brain. So when cortisol levels get really, 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 really high, it can actually kill those neurons in the hippocampus. Um, and that's also the hippocampus is also the place that kind of shuts down the beginning of cortisol release when you have a stress response. So you have less neurons to sort of shut down cortisol. So I think one of the things that we've been hearing a lot lately are, you know, cortisol is bad, but it's bad in light of a chronic exposure. Yes. So I think one of the things that should be addressed is how do you know if you're chronically being exposed to cortisol? Do you wait until you build abdominal fat and then go, (laughs) I wonder if I've been stressed out this whole time because I've worked with people, Jamie, I've worked with so many people and they don't even know they're stressed. And, and I don't like that because when people go, Rick, you must be stressed. I'm like, don't tell me what, if I'm stressed or not, (laughs) but I see people in high intense jobs and they seem cool as a cucumber. Yeah. It's like, man, they're being hit with fire after fire. Their entire job is putting out, figurative fires in their life, in their business, in the lives and business of others, I don't know how they're not affected by that. So do we, do we know? Do we just go through and be like, hey, let's test your, your blood for cortisol levels? What, how do we know? Yeah, that would be kind of an indirect measure. So a lot of a, a lot of a lot of it is perception. So like you were saying, two people could be in that exact situation you described, and one one of them would succumb to the consequences of chronic stress, and the other one wouldn't. A lot of it is how you perceive the event, because perception is everything. Cortisol, you know, as a stress hormone, is very sensitive to thoughts, to process of stress, so rumination. So the the more you think those negative thoughts, and the more you ruminate, the more likely you are to release. Cortisol this is sort of a separate system from our fight or flight response. Um, even they overlap and talk to each other. So you, if you know that you're ruminating a lot and you know that you're sort of constantly thinking about things, um, processing those negative thoughts through your brain, that's you know one sign that you may be <laughs> um, having some some symptoms of chronic stress. Um, you know that you can always measure your cortisol levels, but cortisol isn't really it's really an indirect measure of stress. Um, but I think the, the most important thing for a lot of us is to just get 
get control of our thoughts, which just sounds really easy when I say it. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Because we do have this inherent negativity bias. Um, I talked to Steve a lot about this. Your brain is literally hardwired to think negative thoughts and you get rewarded for thinking these negative thoughts. And it's it's much harder for us to sort of work against that, um, to focus on being happy and focus on um, the good things in our life. But you, the, I guess the good news is you can train yourself to do it. But just like getting big muscles, it doesn't. You, it takes a long time to sort of retrain your brain to think. And it makes sense evolutionarily. I know you talked about John Raddy. He has a, you know, another book, Go Wild, where you know, talks about sort of the evolutionary implications. And, and one of the things you have to imagine is that if you you know, 50,000 years ago, if you were walking around thinking, oh, everything's wonderful, everybody loves me, <laughs> the world is great, shining <laughs> on me, maybe that wouldn't be super adaptive to you, to survival. So it's just, we, right now we have, we have so many people in our lives and so many people to keep up with and just so many stimuli that we just really haven't evolved. These Our brains are not evolved to live in modern environments. So we get ourselves into these sort of mood mood issues and depression issues and, and rumination issues. Yeah, you know what's interesting is the, the difference between what is kind of a, a physical evolution versus a social evolution. Mm-hmm. And socially, we have evolved so much. And, and that, the rapidity at which the so, social evolution is taking place from you know, I, I think about things like my grandparents, you know, when they were when they were young, what they didn't have that I have as a kid, you know, when I was growing up and I already see the things that I didn't have <laughs> when I was a kid. And my kids are so adept at using an iPad and getting the Internet and you know, here, let me share the internet passcode with you through this app. And I was like, what are you doing? How do you know these things? Uh, and, and that's going to continue to happen with them, right? They're, they're going to experience that as they grow up. And it seems like that's moving faster and faster. So the, the physiology is not keeping up necessarily with the sociology of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we can't, you're exactly right. Yeah, our brains can't keep up with our technology. And, and as as primates, you know, especially humans, we're, we're here today because we were so good at living in social groups and helping each other. But we're also, for that reason, very sensitive to social situations. Social stress is the worst stress you can give. It. I mean, I'm in the business of giving people stress and trying to measure their cortisol levels. And nothing is worse for a human than social evaluation and social stress. We don't like it. And now we're in an environment where we're constantly being socially evaluated and we have, you know, all these people that we have to keep up with that are, you know, your brain can keep up with about 150 people and past that you start to have sort of like these little neural hiccups in your social well-being. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I I hear more and more people uh, and maybe it's uh, due to the current state of things, but it's they've they've been exhausted and i live in new york city so they've been exhausted of this new york city lifestyle this urban experience the the intensity and the speed at which things move and the the need to always do and accomplish and you know there's there's been given this opportunity so many where that has been forced away from them and that can be really painful 
Um, but so many people now in a, uh, an insightful way are moving out of New York city and they're saying, this is, I don't think this is what I want. And it wasn't until I didn't have it and wasn't able to have it where I realized, I, let me just get out of here. And I don't think it's necessarily simply limited to let me get away from the pandemic hysteria, living in a city with 9 million people almost. I, I think it's more where a lot of people are just looking at their options and saying, it, now it makes sense to me that I move past this. So we're we're forced into an environment. And this is what's interesting too, is that when there are this many people in one place, um, it's amazing how many people in my building that I don't even know, right? right. There's too many people to connect with. So you end up not connecting with as many people. Right. And, and then I think that you also have that issue with, with social media, where we have all these people that we're connected with and social media is, is good in a way because you know, we can kind of scratch that itch, you know, that itch of, you know, need for connection and need for relationships, but it's, it's not really healthy. Uh, we, we want to do it. It's definitely fulfilling a need, but it's not fulfilling a need in a healthy way. You know, getting a like <laughs> on your social media account isn't the same as a genuine social interaction. So I yeah. think it's, it's hard to say where it's going to go, but it's, it's definitely going to constantly be something that we're attracted to because it, they, we do have this innate drive to connect with people. Um, we don't necessarily know that that's not healthy. Right. And it, uh, one of the best examples that I've heard social media discussed as was Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan said social media is processed content, just like processed food is there. And you get this hyper processed food and you eat a, uh, a candy bar or a lollipop. Like we know that's not good for us, but you can have it from time to time and you can have it in moderation. But sometimes that's all it seems like people are feeding their brain is right. this processed media. And so you lose context, you lose nuance, you lose actual social in interaction, and it's not healthy. Right. No, that, and I think that's, it's going to be interesting to see where that, you know, what happens with that as we move forward, because it's not, it's not lessening. <laughs> so there's only more. No, you're right about that. More outlets no. for it. Uh, all right. So let me let me just take a moment, Jamie. I want to reach over to our producer, Greg. And Greg, as always, thank you so much for putting this show on and helping us uh, 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 be put out there into the public. And, and I appreciate everything that you do for us. I just want to check in with you, see if there's anything going on in the chat, any questions that have popped up that people may have for Jamie. Yeah, uh, Danielle wants to know, exercise dosing in older adults, where can she find additional information about that uh, online? Is there anywhere to find more out about that? Yeah, I would Google um, Joyce Gomez-Osman, G-O-M-E-S-O-S-M-A-N. Um, she's really the leader in that field, and she's right here in South Florida at University of Miami. What is it? Uh, I'm writing it down because I want to learn more about it. So, <laughs> Joyce Gomez. Thank you. All right. So, Greg, what else you got? Uh, Danielle was also wondering how much does getting extra sleep impact uh, not nighttime snacking? Is that why weight is uh, is benefited by getting additional sleep? 
It's 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 not. I mean, you do get like we said, you will get increased ghrelin levels. Um, the, we we kept people awake twenty four hours, and we were able to show significant. We need to publish this, so nobody nobody <laughs> don't scoop me. <laughs> so they, we were able to show that after one night of sleep deprivation, we had significantly increased ghrelin levels, which would lead to increased hunger. Um, however, uh, they. They have also other labs have shown that independent of eating, just those basic changes to your uh, metabolism will, will increase your weight gain with sleep loss. The other thing too, we should also want to mention is the other, so for, especially for people who are in exercise and health, the other problem with not sleeping enough is it, it also decreases testosterone levels. That's not something anybody wants. Wow. I did not know if that was, uh, you know, I've already complained about what I knew that I no longer know, but I don't know if I knew that or not. So yeah, hormones released. Um, I feel like I'm selling sleep. Like I'm a shill for big sleep, but <laughs> <laughs> big sleep, you're really profiting off of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, and, and the other thing too, is a lot of people, a lot of people have asked me if you can sleep like four hours in the afternoon and four hours at night. And you can't do that either. It's gotta be eight consolidated hours, unfortunately. I think it's an interesting question. I forget there, it's called something. I can't remember the name of it, but when people split their sleep up into two separate blocks, um, and I was wondering if there was, was research comparing and contrasting those two. Yeah, it's it's sleep architecture is what we look for, like a healthy sleep architecture, because we said you're going into deep sleep and then up light sleep, REM sleep throughout the night. But the other thing that's happening is that first part of the night, you're spending more time in deep sleep. And then as you get closer and closer to morning, you spend more time in REM sleep. And when you wait, and that again, we said REM sleep is really important for motion processing. So when you wake up naturally without an alarm clock, you should wake, should be very gentle. Your brain wakes up from REM sleep and it's a nice transition. Um, and so you have to go through those sleep stages and you have to do it in a very specific way. There's, un, there's no shortcut and you can't break it up into... 30 minutes here and an hour there, it has to be consolidated sleep. So sleep duration is important, but sleep continuity is important as well. Um, you want to make sure that segmented you're not going to... Segmented sleep. That's yeah, what I, yeah. that's what I well, even like, like obstructive sleep apnea, that's the issue is that their sleep is fragmented. I and mean, that's, that's where some of their mm -hmm. cognitive issues come from is the fragmentation that happens during sleep. So you really, unfortunately, I don't know if it's bad news, but you got to stay asleep. You can't, you can't so break you it up. Go to sleep and stay there. Go to sleep. Uh, one important question then that I want to ask before I let you go and you're, you're a busy lady. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Can I ask about napping? Yeah. Yeah. Napping is, is perfectly okay. Um, if you can still sleep at night. So if you mm. can take, uh, you know, most, so we talked about a lot, a lot about cortisol. So cortisol is important and he, he has so many critical functions in your, in your body, including reducing inflammation. So we want to be very careful. Say cortisol is not bad. But usually around 4 p.m., people's cortisol levels tend to go down. Cortisol levels are high during the day, and they start to go down as the day goes on, and they, they go down pretty significantly around 4 p.m. for most of us. And so that cortisol is really important for giving us energy. And so a lot of times that makes us feel sleepy. So a lot of people want to take a late afternoon nap, which is perfect, a siesta, if you will. <laughs> it's perfectly fine as long as you still sleep at night. You're getting that continuity of sleep during the night. And we would also say, if you're going to take a nap, you want to be careful not to wake up from deep sleep. 
Um, cause then you, you'll, you're not, first of all, you're not going to feel great. And it's going to be very difficult to do it. You'll have what's called sleep inertia where you're, you'll feel crappy and groggy for a while. So usually you want to either get about 15 or 20 minutes, stay in those light stages or just go full throttle and get the 90 minutes, get back to REM and then wake up. <laughs> okay. So that's why sometimes if, I, well, when I used to nap more, um, the nap made everything almost worse. And that's because I was being forced out of that sleep to go do something, but I may have been in a deeper level of sleep when I was pulled away. Yeah. Yeah. You would be experiencing, and you can tell people if you're being cranky, you could just say, look, I have sleep inertia right now. You could just. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So one more question came up and this is personal. Um, So my, my daughter will oftentimes stay up late uh, studying, doing homework and then she has to get up early and go to school. But on the weekends, we let her sleep in. Is she cashing in on some sleep debt? Or should we simply say, hey, we got to try to get you up around the same time just to create some consistency around sleeping and waking? I mean, that, it's tough because she's young. I'm guessing she's yeah. in high school. Yeah, at worst, she's in middle school. Middle school, yeah. Okay, so the... Young, young people, it's it's they need they need sleep, but they're like I said, they're able to stay up. It's really easy for them to stay up at night. And a lot of college, especially college students, young people, they show up as like night owls on assessments that we give them, even though genetically they're actually not night owls. Um, if we followed them for another ten years, we would see that they're actually genetic larks or early birds, um, just because it is so easy for them to stay up later and later to increase their daytime activities and, and study and hang out and things like that. The best thing is to go to bed and wake up at the same time every day because of those hormone systems that we said that, you know, when your circadian system is misaligned, all those other hormone systems that have strict circadian rhythms become, can become misaligned. But if you're going to have a little bit of decreased sleep durations during the week, um, this is what's called chronic sleep restriction. This Because this is what does us in. When none of us are sleep deprived, we all have chronic sleep restriction. We're getting not enough sleep over time. So yeah. it's better to go ahead and pay it off than not pay it off. <laughs> but it's if you but it's even better to wake up and go to bed at the same time. It's just like with my kids, you know, I have 14 year old twins. I it, we do what we need to do. Well, Dr. Jamie Tartar, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you, your insights, your contributions that will soon be made on the uh, NASM Scientific Advisory Board. So uh, if, if by chance, do you have any social media or if people want to reach out to you, ask questions, uh, do you post research? Are there ways that people can get to you to learn more from you? Yeah, we, um, the Society for Neurosports does have, we're on Twitter. I'm not really good at that. Probably the best place is Instagram. I do try to post some infographics from time to time of some of the things that we've talked about and some, some information. So we're at, at Society for Neurosports on Instagram. All right. Look, boom, looked you up already. All right, I'm there for you now. <laughs> Society for <laughs> Neurosports, follow, and I'm there. All right, Dr. Tartar, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you and your insights and your contributions. So thank Thanks, you very Rick. much. Thank you so much fun. And everybody out there, thank you so much for listening. My name is Rick Ritchie. You can reach me on Instagram at dr.rickritchie or rick.ritchie at nasm.org. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.